in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us pray. Grant, we beseech thee, Almighty God, that we who for our evil deeds do worthily deserve to be punished, by the comfort of thy grace, may mercifully be relieved. Through Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The word of God upon which our message is based this day is the gospel lesson from the third chapter of the gospel according to St. John. I read now but the first several verses. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is our text. In the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, Amen. The third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John begins with the words, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. That seems to me a good place for us to begin this message today that we put it in its proper setting. Nicodemus was a searcher. He was an inquirer. He was a man who came to Jesus because he wanted to know more about our Lord Jesus Christ and his teachings. There are two other scriptural references which indicate that Nicodemus was, in a manner of speaking, favorably disposed he was friendly toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In one case, we are told that Nicodemus became a sort of advocate for our Lord Jesus, defending him in his cause against unjust suspicion by the Jews. In the other case, he came to the aid in embalming the body of our Lord after the crucifixion. And I believe it's good that we see Nicodemus in this light. See him really as a man of God, a man of God searching, yearning to know more of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we see him that way rather than in the usual characterization of a self-righteous Pharisee who was antagonistic toward our Lord. Nicodemus, a recognized teacher of Israel in his own right, respectfully acknowledged our Lord Jesus as a teacher come from God. That's what he said to Jesus when he addressed him 
And he said, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God be with him. This was good perception on the part of Nicodemus. He knew that he was not dealing with just another teacher. And so it was that the searcher, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, was taught the way of salvation, and not just as a play on words, but he was taught by the way of salvation, Jesus Christ himself, who said of himself that he is the way. You may recall that our Lord Jesus told Nicodemus that in order for a person to have eternal salvation, it was necessary that the person be born again. Nicodemus, for one thing, was an elderly man, and this caused great consternation. He puzzled over this. He wondered how a person, particularly an old person, he said, could be born again. The Lord Jesus then used an analogy to illustrate his point, to tell how this can and how this does happen. And our Lord used, not by chance, but very much by design, he used the analogy of the wind, telling Nicodemus, you hear the wind, but you don't see it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes, but you see the effects of it. And so he used that to illustrate the unseen but wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. You don't see the Holy Spirit, he was saying, but he is there. His unseen working and movement is there in the hearts and lives of people, kindling faith in the souls of men, nourishing faith in the souls of men. Now, at least according to what is recorded in Scripture, it appears that our Lord used fewer words than I, up to this point at least, to get to the thrust of his message to Nicodemus, namely, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son into death for sinful and lost mankind. An old and familiar story to you and me, but an old and familiar story that we should tell and retell with joy and thanksgiving to the Lord, because really it is the story of our spiritual lives, here in time and hereafter in eternity. Every devout Jew was familiar with the exploits of Moses and also of the children of Israel during the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness en route to the promised land. And so with Nicodemus, he was no exception. He knew this particularly because he is described as being a ruler of the Jews, a learned man, one who would know the scriptures. The Exodus, the 40 years of wandering, by literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of God's people were, to say the least, successful. The exodus and the wanderings were successful not because of Moses, nor yet because of the people themselves, but rather because of the divine guidance and providence of a gracious, loving God, your Lord and God and mine. But this was a fact which was sometimes overlooked. We're told in the first lesson today that 
the people grew impatient. They were anxious. They didn't like what they were having to go through. 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, very good chapter to read. Our Lord Jesus used the particular account from the book of Numbers, or at least a significant excerpt from that account, as another analogy in his teaching of Nicodemus. The mere mention of how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness would have brought to mind the plague of fiery serpents which God had sent among his people, an act which was precipitated by the unceasing murmuring and complaining of the people against the Lord and against the man that God had called to lead his people, Moses. Tells us of the impatience of the people who yearned for the rich food and drink which they had had in such great abundance during their time of enslavement in Egypt, of their outspoken lack of appreciation for the benevolence of God in the face of his miraculous providing for all of their needs. Remember, they didn't take lock, stock, and barrel with them when they left Egypt. The clothes on their back, a meager meal, and that was it. And God provided from that day forward. Daily, he provided manna from heaven. But what did the people say of that? We loathe this worthless food. Such arrogance, such audacity, such ingratitude. But the Lord brought them to their knees. He did it not because he was vengeful, vindictive, capricious, or any of these other negative things, God brought them to their knees because he loved them. This is the nation from among the nations of the earth, which God in his grace had chosen as his sacred vessel, not only to convey his message of salvation through the promised Messiah from one generation to another, but the very nation from whom the Messiah himself would come. Their time of testing, their time of proving in the wilderness was anything but glamorous to them. It became a drag. It was a burden to them. And many's the time that they just completely lost sight of their high and holy calling as people of God. God had an antidote for that. God's antidote to their rebellion was the fiery serpent. When people began dying on all sides because of snake bites, they soon got the message and they repented. And Moses appealed to God on behalf of the people. God responded. He instructed Moses to fashion a serpent out of metal, a snake, put it on a pole, and raise the pole up for the people to see. The promise of God was there that those who looked, believing that that look would save them, if they were bitten by a snake, would be spared. And so scripture tells us, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit any man, 
he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It took an act of faith on the part of God's people, looking because of God's word of promise to them to save them. Strange, unbelievable, incredible, though it may have seemed then and even now, perhaps even more so now, it worked. By the word and promise of God, it worked. And this Jesus used as an illustration to get to the heart of his message to Nicodemus and to us. In many ways, the most basic and the most important teaching in all of Christianity. Our Lord forecast his death on the cross when he said to Nicodemus, so, in the same way that this happened in the days of Moses, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The same kind of thing, it will take an act of faith to believe that that mortal, seeming mortal, on the cross could be your Savior. The whole plan and the whole condition of salvation through Christ are spelled out in just these few words of this one verse. Almighty God decreed that his son must die. As we said in Bible class this morning, we can take our little scriptural scalpel and try to dissect this. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't he do it that way? Why didn't he do it a thousand and one other ways? And God says, in my infinite wisdom, in the eternal counsels of Almighty God, of which you know nothing, I decree that the way of salvation for lost and sinful mankind is through the death of my Son. And God also decreed that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who accept him as Lord and Savior, will be saved. We heard in last Sunday's message the great promise of God, as Paul wrote to the Christians at Rome, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, nestled into this morning's text is perhaps the best known of all gospel passages. I must say that there are others which are equally good, but it's John 3:16, a passage that you and I have heard repeated time and time again. We have shared it with others. It was the basis for the hymn which we sang this morning. It's a passage which explains why in the infinite wisdom of God, his son Jesus must be lifted up. And why was this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let that answer ring. Let it resound in your hearts and in your minds that the reason Christ Jesus our Lord had to suffer and die is because God loved the world. On the back cover of our Ash Wednesday evening bulletin, we had a brief article in which we spoke of the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing again the great love of God for us, and emphasized the fact 
that this is what all of the preaching during the Passion season, the season of Lent, is really all about. We made mention of the fact that all the sin in the world could never produce, that the world could ever produce, could never nail our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. It wasn't really the sin of the world that nailed Jesus to the cross. Only the great love of God could and did do that. In the same way, but with more far-reaching consequences, eternal, everlasting consequences, as the love of God which prompted him to save the smitten Israelites by way of the bronze serpent, dealing with their physical life through Christ, dealing with our spiritual life. Our Lord Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He himself says of his mission, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Thus says the Lord, and that name is Jesus Christ. And those who do not believe on that name are condemned, says who? Says Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's way of salvation is the only way of salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. Truly it is the straight way and the narrow gate. Only in the sense that people reject Christ does Christ cause their eternal downfall. It's good if we ask why anyone would reject Jesus Christ. If Christ is the only way, and by the word of the Lord he is, then why, oh why? Don't people accept him? Why might there be people sitting here today, for example, who are saying, I've heard all of this before. I've heard this from the time I was a kid, and I don't believe it any more today than I ever did. And they got lots of counterparts outside of those doors. Why would anyone adopt an attitude like that? Well, Jesus himself once again supplies the answer as he says, this is the judgment. This is the reason that people are judged and sentenced to hell, that the light has come into the world. He's referring to himself. Remember, he once said of himself, I, I am the light of the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. A person doesn't have to sweat and strain. He doesn't have to struggle to know what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying and what our Lord Jesus Christ means when he says this. It's as plain as the noses on our faces. It's a story virtually as old as time itself. There are those sinful people who simply will not repent. 
They will not let go of the death grip they have on their evil deeds, their evil thoughts, their evil ways. And they will go to hell because of it. And they don't like Christ. They don't like the light of the world because he shows up their evil deeds in all of their gruesomeness and ugliness. These are people who in many cases do hear and have heard God's message of grace through Jesus Christ. But people who resist the Holy Spirit, they take consolation, many of them, in the fact that there are others who think, who speak, and who act as they do. Others who, like themselves, simply will not repent. Others who will not accept Christ, who steadfastly refuse to expose their sins and their sinfulness to the spiritually pure and antiseptic light, who is Christ. Such people won't believe it. I'm not really that naive. I know that they won't believe it. But they are writing their own one-way ticket, a one-way ticket to eternal damnation. I say they won't believe it, and that's true. Their minds are made up. Their hearts are hardened. They are cut off from eternal life, not by God, who loves them, they are cut off from eternal life by themselves. And how do we know, how can we be sure that God did not cut them off? The answer is here, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Christ, the Son of God, on the cross is an accomplished fact which can never be changed. Christ died on the cross for one fundamental reason. God loved the world. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.